Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the joy of talking to Isabel Grok about her book, Conservation Canines, How Dogs Work for the Environment. Isabel Grok is an award-winning writer, conservation photographer, book author, and documentary filmmaker focusing on wildlife conservation and the relationships between people and the natural world. Her photography and stories have been published in magazines and news outlets all around the world, and she has written and directed a dozen films on wildlife and nature. She is the author of Conservation Canines, How Dogs Work for the Environment, which was published in fall 2021. Conservation Canines is her third book after Gone is Gone, A Wildlife Under Threat, and Sea Otters, A Survival Story. Isabel grew up in France and now lives in Vancouver and Salt Spring Island, British Columbia. I am super excited to get to this interview, but before we get to it, we do have a science highlight to go over. So this is a 29 paper that was published in Nature Conservation titled Performance of Detection Dogs and Visual Searches for Scat Detection and Discrimination with Related Species with Identical Diets. So, their question was, how do dogs compare to experts and amateurs for scat identification in the field? And what they found was that scats of related species or species with similar diet are often visually indistinguishable. Experts showed higher average accuracy of 0.89, or I suppose 89%, than non-experts, which was 72% and below. But the detection dogs, and they used four dogs, were able to discriminate between otter and mink scats under laboratory conditions with an accuracy of 95%. Moreover, otter scat detection dogs found up to four times more scat samples in the field, were twice as fast as human searchers, and found almost an equal number of scats with different characteristics, while humans mostly found older and larger scats placed on hotspots. Couple limitations for this study. There were four dogs and they were all pets, um, which is actually pretty good. Most of these studies that we highlight are one dog. Of course, there also is going to be a variety in the expert and amateur ability in different situations or with other species pairs. So without further ado, let's get to our episode with Isabel Groke. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Isabel. Hello, Kayla. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Yeah. So why don't we start out with kind of your inspiration for this book? What what got you started on the track to thinking about conservation dogs and you know, all the different types of conservation dogs. How did you even get the idea to start writing this book? It's a it's a great question. I'm a photographer and, and writer and um, filmmaker working to document wildlife conservation projects. And a few years ago, about 10 years ago, actually, I was uh, out in the field in British Columbia, where I live, near Vancouver in a, in a wetland, and I was uh, filming uh, wildlife biologists who were studying the Oregon spotted frog. So now, I don't know if you're familiar with the Oregon spotted frog, Kayla, but it is um, a very endangered amphibian and in Canada. It's one of the most endangered amphibians, and you can only find it in uh, six isolated populations in, um, in British Columbia in wetlands. So the scientists need to really understand where the frogs live, what kind of um, habitat they're using, so they can take actions to, to better protect the frogs. They only have one problem, is that the frogs are very good at hiding. They're very shy, they're very well camouflaged, they hide in uh, 
wetland tunnel. So so it's it's not an easy process, and you can um, envision the terrain, the wetland. So it's it's a difficult uh, place to navigate for humans trying to survey this this habitat. So they have people have to move through. Uh, they walk slowly in knee deep mud uh, during the, the breeding season of the frog, which is very short. So they really often very easily miss the frogs. So that particular day, I was learning about the frogs and documenting how the wildlife biologists were attempting to learn more about this very shy frog. And that day I was surprised to see a dog in the field working alongside those um, biologists. And I learned that this dog named Ali, as an Australian cattle dog, had been brought in from a program called Conservation Canines with the University of Washington. And she had been brought in to help those scientists give them a hand to find the frogs and use her sense of smell. And what really surprised me, i never seen a conservation canine before. I didn't know they could do that. I knew traditionally dogs uh, were used for um, drug detection, explosives, finding people in, in the snow and things like that. But I was amazed by Ali's confidence, her agility, and how quickly she could move around in this wetland and also how quickly she found a frog. So... It, it was for me a, a moment of revelation and admiration. I, uh, uh, for the scientists, it was a very exciting discovery because they were actually not even sure that a dog could sniff out an amphibian. Um, and so a discovery like that for them would mean that it could help them gain some time in terms of finding these frogs in its habitat. And it's also non-invasive, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fast efficient and more reliable. So from there, I discovered that all over the world, dogs were being increasingly being used for wildlife conservation. So I, Ali inspired me in that way, and I became fascinated with what those uh, dogs could do, and I wanted to, to tell his story. So that, um, that inspired me to write the book. And uh, I must say on a side note that Ali, is now uh, retired with um, rogue detection teams and she's going to be celebrating her 18th birthday in April. So that's... Oh, um, oh, I just saw... Yeah, they just had a really cute Instagram post of her being pulled behind on a sled. Um, yes, and, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, they were out cross-country skiing and were, they brought her with. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah very cute. It's, it's wonderful. I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, really cool. Yeah, and um, yeah, Ali is definitely one of those dogs that um, is a little bit of a legend in the field. <laughs> you know, we can think of... She's the matriarch, There's... for sure. Yes, yeah, absolutely. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So very cool. How did you go about kind of finding... Because you highlighted such a wide variety of um, organizations. You know, we're looking at everything from livestock guardian dogs kind of all over the world to these detection dogs. Um you know, doing everything from law enforcement to the ecological monitoring. Like, how did you even go about finding and choosing all the different organizations you were going to highlight for the book? Yes, what? Once I found out about all the ways that dogs could help the environment, I thought, okay, well, I'd really like to showcase the variety of their roles. So I did a lot of uh, research as, as a journalist. I asked conservation groups for examples of um, wildlife projects that involve dogs. Um, I got in touch with dog handlers and asking them, well, what kind of projects are you are you working on? And um, people in researchers in universities. So I, I wanted to, to showcase 
as many um, roles as possible. And as you mentioned, not only the detection roles, but also how dogs now are, again, increasingly placed in roles as uh, livestock guardian um, guardian dogs uh, helping uh, people to coexist with, with predators on the landscape, which uh, to me was a, a fascinating story to tell because traditionally, long, long time ago, when dogs became uh, domesticated, being um, protecting livestock was one of those very ancient working roles. And then particularly in Europe, where there were wolves and bears, and as time went on, there was unfortunately very little tolerance for these predators on the landscape. So they were gone from those territories. So these uh, livestock guardian dogs lost their jobs. They, some of them, the breeds, specialized breeds, even disappeared uh, entirely, went extinct. And now with the changes in values and how we view the important role of predators in our ecosystems, uh, and have allowed them to return either naturally or through reintroduction programs, well, uh, people still are living on the landscape where they're livestock and need to learn how to coexist with those predators. And the livestock guardian dogs have found, once again, a new role helping us coexist with, with wildlife. So I really wanted to document that. And that took me all over the world. And I went to Namibia, I went to uh, Australia, I went to Portugal and France, where I was born um, in the United States and Canada. So it was, a, it was a bit of a whirlwind world tour with, with those dogs. Oh, yeah, that's so cool. I, uh, <laughs> I'm like, I want to write a book where I get to travel the world and meet all the different conservation dogs of the world. Um, yeah, so very, very cool. And so, but again, kind of was this kind of through word of mouth? Did you, after talking to conservation canines, kind of start getting an idea for like, oh, you know, the Alberta Muscle Program and Lauren um, went over with uh, Washington State. Um, yeah, how did you even find some of these? Because I know I've heard of a couple of these programs, like the Little Blue Penguin Project down in Australia, which we can talk about, gets a lot of press, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but some of the others I hadn't heard of before re reading your book. Yes, it's a, it was interesting, definitely for, you mentioned the muscles, but I, I did contact a lot of organizations, so conservation canines, rogue detection teams that came along later, but also working dogs for conservation. And I, I contacted them and asked them, well, what, what are you working on? What are the groups you helped? And they were the ones, for example, who told me, well, we helped develop this program in Alberta, where we have these three dogs that are now helping uh, detect invasive uh, zebra mussels uh, in Alberta's uh, lakes and uh, at boat inspection stations. Um, others, um, the Penguin Project, which I'm sure we'll talk about in Australia, was I, I read about it. I was just doing a search and, and found out about it and I became very interested in it. So I contacted the, the organization there in Warrnambool in Australia. Um, and then in Europe to be able to find uh, livestock garden uh, dogs, I contacted several organizations in France as well. And then I, I by a little bit by chance, I found this uh, program in Grupo Lobo in Portugal which was very active and did so much to reintroduce some of these ancient Portuguese breeds of livestock guardian dogs that I'd never heard of. 
and um, and even though I never I don't speak Portuguese, I had never been to Portugal. I, I we connected, and I took a trip there in the in central Portugal in the mountains, and and found um, found those those dogs and met the farmers who are actually now using those dogs to better coexist with with wolves in in this region. So so it's a bit of a word of mouth, uh, lots of readings, and 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 a lot talking to the expert. I think it's for 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 something like that, you, you really uh, look to to the the, the the experts in conservation, the dog handlers uh, who work in this field, and the scientists as well who, who have used dogs um, over time. I think it's my journalism training, <laughs> I suppose, uh, that that really helped uh, me in, in that way because that's that's what I do really trying to find those stories. And I keep, uh, you know, I keep finding so many more as I could because I, the book might be over in terms of the writing, it's out and published. But since then, I have learned of so many more. And I thought, oh, I wish I could have featured them. Oh, that's so interesting. This project in, in the UK and in Brazil and in Sweden, all over the world. There's so many and so many things that they do as well that I hadn't even imagined that, that they do. So I'll have to write yeah. part two, I suppose. <laughs> I was just going to say, it sounds like Equal. we need a, a part two, um, which, I mean, and it's such a lovely book. It really um, is the sort of book that, like, I would be totally happy having a, a couple volumes of it. Um, you and your publisher did a really lovely job putting it together. Well, thank you very much, Kelly. Well, I think I'll never, you know, the conservation canines, it's it's really close to my heart. It's, it's part of me now. So I'm always interested. I'll be always, I know I'll always be writing and, and photographing those dogs it, it's just um, they're so amazing and inspiring in what they do that it's it's something that I, I'll, I'm sure I'll continue to to be involved you you just don't quit this it's it's part of my life now <laughs> <laughs> yep I know the feeling um, I uh, you know I, I don't see myself ever fully leaving this field even if uh, I have definitely considered taking some vacations to um, other jobs to make more money. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we'll see. Um, but okay, so let's talk a little bit about, um, do you want to just take some time to highlight a couple of the really cool projects that were in the book? Obviously, you know, we want people to go ahead and just buy the book. So we're not going to spoil the whole thing. But what are some <laughs> of the projects that maybe were most fun for you as you were actually getting to research them? Everything was really fun to research and to document. What I really enjoyed is being in the field. I, I was lucky to do most of that research and field work before COVID, where we could still travel relatively easily. So spend most of the pandemic uh, time writing, actually, the book and putting it together. Um, so I... Yeah, it was it was the timing worked out in that way, but uh, certainly I really enjoyed every single project. And uh, what what surprised me the most, perhaps as I was following these dogs um, in in the field, is that I felt and learning about the projects and how they make a difference for wildlife is that you know that they are able to track all these rare, elusive, endangered animals and plants. They they can find invasive species, the tiniest one. They can fight wildlife trafficking. Uh, they they are, can be trained to detect scat, scat samples on so many different species. And 
to me, every time I learn about a new project, I, I really think, wow, they can do that. They can do this. And many dog handlers and the conservation groups that work with the dogs have told me, well, there's really almost unlimited use for, for the dogs. And it's true that it seems that uh, uh, what the dogs can do is maybe just limited by our own imagination of what, what we think they can they can do or cannot do. So over the years, I followed uh, uh, Ali's career, for example, since I, I, I saw her, um, witnessed her following the Oregon Spotted Frog. But she she was also involved in a project with the Pacific uh, Pocket Mouse, which is really a tiny, tiny little mouse, very endangered. Um, I understand that she's even found the, the scat that they actually call frass for the Oregon Silver Spot Butterfly. Caterpillar. I don't know if you're familiar with that endangered butterfly. Find it in the coastal meadows of, I think, from Washington to Northern California. So it's a the, the size of that the frass is like it's pepper flakes. So what are the chances? How can they even find this in in the field? And um, and then in um, in the, for me when I went in the field. One of the stories maybe that I can share that really blew my mind is when I was invited to go on, on, in the San Juan Island at Friday Harbor to document um, a project that has been a long-term study of um, identifying or collecting uh, scat samples for the southern resident killer whales. Um, so the southern resident killer whales uh, living in Washington State, very endangered population, less than 80 animals left. And the conservation canines program with the University of Washington have used the dogs to try and collect uh, scat samples from the orca. So that day I went to see what it was like because I was, um, I was quite skeptical. I said, how, how is it possible? How can the dogs can work from a boat and find floating scat that is really small and is sinking very quickly and how will they communicate that to to the handler because they're on the boat and the scat is uh, is in the water obviously so i went to um, to visit with uh, with a dog named dio and uh, and i saw firsthand how dio was on the boat with uh, with a captain and uh, her his dog, um, his handler, um, partner uh, Colette Yi at the time, and how uh, they all worked together to to find the, the scat. And it was um, really interesting because I realized then that it was not just uh, the sense of smell that that made that work successful, the dog's ability to to detect that, but also the teamwork because to get to the scat, the, the captain has to drive the boat and and the handler has to really read the signs from the dog and where is that scat? How do we position the boat to move closer to, to that scat? So, so it's really... Uh, uh, to me, it was an ex excellent example of these communication skills from the dog, but also from all involved in working with the dogs to really be paying attention and reading what the dog is saying and helping support the dog to be successful because the dog doesn't work on his own. He has to be part of that team. And and to me, that to this day, I mean, there are many more fun projects, but it's, it's something that I find really inspiring inspiring and also just to think about uh, there's many more dogs that have contributed to to this program just uh, not just you um, but 
over the years, that has really helped. The dog's work has helped scientists learn so much about the these uh, this population of orcas. They, um, they I, I can't remember how many scats they samples they collected, but like hundreds. And so over the years, they discovered through their analysis of the scat, what they've discovered is that those orcas went through. Uh, unsuccessful pregnancy, so they they were pregnant, but they they couldn't um, they were not successful because they didn't have enough to eat. They were highly stressed, so it's all very important scientific information that was discovered in part because of the dog's work, and also can show how that information can help advocate for okay, we need better protection for these orcas and make sure that uh, we protect the their, their food source, which is the Chinook salmon. So. So that's that's Dio's story, and what I'd like to perhaps add about Dio, which is also the story of many of these conservation canines, as you probably know, is that they they started as shelter dogs, unwanted pets. I, I was told that that story by uh, Heath Smith at um, Rogue Detection Teams that back then, uh, when conservation canines adopted Dio, he was in a shelter in California. He had almost no teeth, and he was uh, biting at tires. Um, and you know, it's sadly what a lot of these conservation canines are. They uh, they have this high energy. They're ball obsessed. Nobody wants them, and they end up in those uh, in those shelters where they don't have a chance to be adopted until they cross the path like of organizations like Working Dogs for Conservation or Conservation Canines or Rogue Detection Teams or order. there's many others that, that find they're able to see the special qualities of these dogs. So, and where I see where it's taken you from uh, biting at tires to now uh, uh, pursuing a really great conservation career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think the rescue dog piece is something that always gets people's attention and um, gets people really excited. Um, it's uh, I actually just recorded um, an episode with Heath and Jennifer talking about um, kind of difficult dogs and how we help these dogs transition from these shelter dogs with behavior issues into being really successful conservation dogs. So, um, And we actually ended up turning that into a two-parter with one of my good friends who's also a certified dog behavior consultant who's got a lot of shelter experience. So we're kind of talking about it for both sides of the coin. I think that actually may come out before this episode, but it's just, it's so cool and so inspirational. And um, I'm glad you brought up the uh, orca work as well, because I think that is one of the sides of the conservation dog um, research that is also just the most impressive. Um, I mean, I'm not in the business of ranking um, ranking these dogs because obviously <laughs> I think I think my dogs are the most impressive and the most perfect. But um, you know, <laughs> uh, the the whale work is just mind blowing. And then not only I hadn't realized again until I read your book. It, a, it's just so impressive that we can have these dogs that are out on the bow of the boat and they're working with the handler and the captain to go ahead and find this scat, um, which is just crazy. But, you know, talking about the changes that they were seeing, where I think you talked about in the book how over the years the scat has floated less and is, I think you said it was greasier. Um, yeah, it's it's very interesting. It's definitely been over the years more challenging because this dog project has, um, you know, with the, with the well project has been going on for at least a decade. And I've I've spoken with uh, Deborah Giles, who's um, Jill Giles, <laughs> uh, who she's a um, killer whale 
research scientist and she's been very involved and she knows a lot. It's actually her dog now that continues the, the work, a, a white dog, very impressive, yeah, beautiful. But what they've noticed is that at first they were collecting more samples and over the years, well, there are fewer wells as a start, so the population has been declining. They're more dis- spread out, so it's harder to find them. Uh, and they're when they're coming, the timing of their coming to this area in the summer has been le- less predictable. So uh, it's it's there are fewer opportunities to even get out of the water when the the orcas are there. And with the scat, the scat has become. Uh, sandier, there's less fat in it, It's uh, which is a direct um, evidence that those uh, orcas don't have enough to, to eat. So that is reflected in their scats. So they don't have much food. So as a result, well, what they produce is has changed. And as a result, it becomes more even more challenging and difficult to, to find those, those cat samples. So I believe that over the years, their collection rate of the scat with even with the good help of the of the dogs and the team has dropped because sadly if the the state of decline the population is is in but i'm i'm impressed that this project has kept going and is still going for that many years and is still contributing to not only collecting data but also helping raise awareness about the yeah. importance of, uh, of uh, conserving these uh, these orchids well and it seems like you know that longitudinal data of the fact that hey, things are changing is just as important as the fact that, hey, we might not have as much scat now to analyze, but we now really have kind of empirical data showing that it's decreasing over time. It's not that the dogs aren't working. It's not that the whales were never here. It's that things have changed. And, um, you know, the other thing I wanted to circle back to is I think like this example of, um, you know, it's tragic that these whales are, are losing their pregnancies, but that's just such a cool example of what we can find out from SCAT that you may, would be really, really challenging to get from just about any other research method, you know. Um, you know, obviously with whales, we can't do things like camera traps or hair traps or anything like that. I mean, um, and even if we were following tagged whales or something like that, or following them with drones, there's a good chance that we would miss. Um, I, I, I imagine from a drone, you can't tell that a whale is pregnant, um, especially if they're losing that pregnancy early on. But um, yeah, I mean, it just, again, it underlines just how incredibly valuable scat is and how valuable the dogs are. If we can get the dogs to find the scat, once we've got the scat, I mean, it's just... As someone who is not a geneticist or not an endocrinologist, um, I'm always just blown away by what we're able to find by, you know, what looks like a pile of poop that my dog found to me. Uh, You're so right. I mean, without the dogs, what are the chances that humans could find something like that? Can you imagine floating orcas cat in the water? Right. Well, it doesn't float that long, right? It's not like you've got hours no. or days to no. find it you have a really short window of opportunity to it's collect crazy. it so you got to to see it and then uh, yes i guess all the the data they've been collecting and um and the difference that they they can make because all the data collection in turn helps better protect better understand so it has so much uh, so much value in the in that way 
Hi, Clint and Luca here. Luca is an Akita mix that I adopted from a shelter almost two years ago. From a very young age, Luca has struggled with some general fear and anxiety, um, especially out in the world. I randomly took a nose work class and noticed a massive difference in her behavior. She was a lot more interested in exploring her environment and loved going on adventures. I love being a Patreon because selfishly, I get so much great information about nature and conservation that I would not have gotten otherwise, like books to read and articles to look at. I also get access to Kayla's great knowledge. I am new to Patreon, but I'm excited to have a group of people to help Luca and I move forward with combining our love of nature and her natural scent ability. I love that I'm able to support someone exploring two of my favorite things, conservation and dog behavior. And maybe one day, with the support and knowledge from canine conservationness, I can get there myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, and I think, like, on this podcast, we talk a ton about the the detection dog side of things. And I actually, I just put on my to-do list to reach back out to you in a couple months um, and get a couple of your contacts, some of the people that you've highlighted that are maybe people I haven't spoken to yet. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm, I'm I'm going. I would love to talk to, especially some of these other projects that are using dogs for non-detection related purposes. So, do you want to talk about um, maybe a favorite livestock guardian dog um, that you highlighted in the book as well? Mm, yeah, and I guess yeah, we don't um, have to say favorite because we don't want everyone else to feel bad, but one that springs to mind. <laughs> there, there's a few things I'd like to 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 highlight. So. One of the use of a livestock garden dogs, um, unusual use for livestock garden dogs, was a project I came across in uh, in Australia, where they had brought in uh, marama dogs to help initially with livestock protection, traditional roles, but also to act not just as a, I guess, a peacemaker, if you will, trying to protect livestock from predators, from dingoes or other others, um, but also to help with um, with protecting uh, little penguins. So in uh, in Australia, there's this um, in Warrnambool, there's a little island called Middle Island, and um, there's a peng- little penguin colony. And sadly, over the years, this little penguin colony has been hit very hard by uh, foxes, foxes attacks, because the fox, well, can get to the island and they find a, an easy meal. And they they had really literally wiped out the, the colony because the, the penguins really, there's not much they can do. And it turned out that... Uh, they were the searches and people, the community said, oh, what can we do? We, we can't just let that happen. What, what, what are our options? And then it was a, a chicken farmer <laughs> that heard about this problem. And he happened to have a Marema dog, you know, beautiful white dog, um, originally from Italy. This is where the breed comes from. And he said, well, I'm using t- this dog to help me uh, protect my chickens from those same foxes. Why don't we try and use the same dog to uh, protect the penguins against the foxes? If it can be trained to protect chickens, why not? <laughs> why not the the penguins? And so they thought oh, that's an intriguing idea. Why don't we try it? So they introduced the the dog to uh, to the penguins, so the dog could learn what that is that they're protecting, and they place the dog. Now they actually work in pairs on Middle Island, and they realized that it was a fantastic and so successful way to deter um, the 
the foxes from coming to, to the island. So having the dogs there bark and stand their ground is enough to, to get the foxes to uh, think, oh, well, <laughs> it's not such a good idea for me to try and get this little penguin. So it's, a, it's an unusual and fabulous and inspiring uh, way to use those uh, livestock garden dogs as um, protect to protect other endangered species, really, as wildlife guardians. And the way they did that is really with using these methods that originally livestock garden dogs have been used to, to, to protect livestock, which is to introduce them to the species they're supposed to, or the animals they're supposed to protect. And this is what I've observed, how, how do they train livestock guardian dogs? Um, in the first place, um, I went to France and Portugal to, to see how they do this and met some of those puppies. And they really place an emphasis on the early introduction of these dogs to the livestock. So they raised with with the goats or uh, or the cattle, whatever, and uh, the sheep. And they learn that this is their family. So once they're out with the livestock, they will have this um, this mission, this duty, no matter what, to to protect these these animals. And uh, in Namibia as well, they used these dogs in 1994. Uh, the Cheetah Conservation Fund has a livestock guardian program that's very successful where they place um, Anatolian shepherd dogs with farmers in Namibia to help them protect their livestock against um, cheetah attacks. And in this case, it's... Um, it's a really story of um, of um, helping the cheetah survive because for many years they realized, well, the cheetah numbers are really declining as an endangered um, species. But they also were finding out that the farmers, uh, they were killing every time they see a cheetah, they'll just shoot it because they think automatically, well, okay, this cheetah is dangerous. It's going to attack my livestock and uh, I need to get rid of it. So the dog program, um, introducing the livestock guardian dogs to uh, to to the, the farmers and to their goats and sheep has really helped reduce the mortality of, of cheetah uh, because now the farmers feel more confident. The dogs are there. They, um, they stand their ground. They will really protect uh, the um, the livestock from from these uh, these predators intrusions and uh, to me there's something so incredible to think how how's that possible how a dog can can stand it you know and face facing a wolf or a bear or all this but but these breeds are are really specialized they they have uh, they're bigger size they have a really loud bark and they they're really fearless they're very calm they're very independent and they will stand their ground they will do anything to protect their their family if you will so it's a uh, it's really inspiring to see them at work i i was really uh, feeling i felt grateful to be able to to see them at work because i think it's a it's a very important component of uh, how dogs help w w with the with the environment and often I realize the focus is often is on those detection dogs and we we sometimes miss these other roles that the dogs have to uh, to, to, to help um, uh, protect wildlife in the long run and in this particular case it's a really uh, critical piece which is to to promote or to support human wildlife coexistence which we know now is one of the um, poignant, most important issues to deal with because habitat is shrinking, uh, there's um, less and less um, 
uh, fewer spaces for for these predators to roam around, and uh, humans have uh, have are pretty much in all of these places. So, so how how do we do this? How do we get to to live together? And, and the dogs are are teaching us that they can play their their part in uh, in helping us coexist and gain acceptance of these predators as well. Yeah, I think it's really you know there, there's plenty of talk um, in a lot of sectors of the internet, sectors of the world about, you know, dog wildlife conflict and how dogs can upset wildlife or, you know, they chase them, they disturb them, they kill them, they eat them, um, all sorts of bad stuff. But it's so cool to see how by using these dogs as a deterrent and actually leveraging the fact that dogs and wildlife don't always get along, we can actually ultimately reduce the harm that is caused because it's much better to have a maremma that is deterring foxes or, um, you know, whatever. Uh, I can't remember the spe- the breed that they were using in Namibia for cheetahs. And it, um, and it, yeah, Kangol. Kangol. Yeah. Kangol. Kangol. Yeah. Kangol. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but um, using those Kengals, you know, it, it's much better for a cheetah to be deterred or even potentially chased off by a Kengal than to be shot on sight. Uh, and I exactly. Think, yeah, yeah it helps. and it's really cool to leverage leverage all these different ways that we can use our dogs. So as we're kind of wrapping up here, is there anything more you kind of wanted to talk about in the process of writing the book, researching the book? Um, we will wrap up with, of course, letting people know where to find the book um, and any other promotions that you want to make sure to mention if you've got other big projects coming up. Um, that was a lot of questions all in one. So go ahead. Oh, yeah. Um, one of the other cool things I think I'll mention about, uh, about the dogs that are featured in the book is that I got also to meet and uh, following up on your question around human wildlife conflict and reducing those. I in the book, I also featured Karelian bear dogs, and these is a particular breed that helps um, reduce conflict with uh, with bears. And there are their jobs is to chase bears away from people's backyards, campground, campgrounds. So it's really another take on uh, how how can we live together and and coexist with with wildlife. So that's another example that I thought was really interesting and cool to see how a, a small dog like this can stand its ground and chase the bear off that that was a uh, really uh, interesting to me um i think for me um the second question was uh sorry there were three questions there um how big projects to, to coming up <laughs> yeah 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 i mean anything you wanted to highlight in the book big projects coming up and then we'll wrap up with telling people where to find Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, things I'll wrap up is that I've really learned from um, a lot from these conservation canines, and often I'm asked, "Well, can I do this with my own dog? Can I can I can my dog can become a a conservation canine?" And uh, and often, as you know, it's a it's actually a very specialized, highly skilled job, and it, not every dog can do that, and and not certainly not every human can can do that. However, I always tend to tell people that are inspired and intrigued by this that and have dogs in their own lives is that well think about that's an opportunity to look at your dog differently to maybe think about their how they experience the the world through their nose and uh, maybe when you go out again for in in in, um, in nature for a walk just get to experience uh the natural world from their own point of view, perhaps, uh, because they this uh, if you if you let them um, uh, 
teach you how they view the world. I mean, I think you, you gain a, such a rich, rich perspective of those details that you may not see. So, yeah, the, the final question was where people can find the book and, um, and also stay up to date on any upcoming projects from you. Okay, yeah. So people can find and purchase the book from uh, Conservation Canines, How Dogs Work for the Environment, either directly from my publisher, Orca Books, or from any online bookseller, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, or, or anything else. Or, or I would encourage people also to order it from their local independent bookstores that we're also very happy to, to support. Um, and then in terms of um, big project planned, I actually, as you know, I'm a filmmaker as well, and I have a f new documentary that will coming, be coming out in the fall, which is uh, actually about the ancestor of the dog, <laughs> about wolves. And uh, this documentary is about how we can coexist with with wolves on the on the landscape, and it's really um, highlighting our our place in the natural world and how we view and interact with the, with wild creatures. So I'm uh, I'm very excited about that, and um, people can follow me on Instagram where I post uh, news of events about the book and talks and uh, and photos of all of all these uh, different things I'm uh, I'm doing. Great. Yeah, that book sounds like it's going to be fascinating. And, you know, growing up in northern Wisconsin and then living in Colorado, where we just had wolves pop back up and then living in Montana, where there's all sorts of wolf controversy. Um, I've pretty much always lived somewhere where wolves have been a hot button topic, both on the ecological side and the political side. And, you know, there's a lot of disagreement. So I'm, I'm really excited to see that coming out. Um <clears throat> So, and of course, we will have links to all of that in the show notes. I will um, I will probably have a link to Amazon because that is a way that we can make a little bit of money. But um, I would actually encourage people to definitely go to your, your local small bookseller rather than supporting Jeff Bezos. Um, so thank you so much, Isabel. Um, again, this was just a really lovely book. And um, I think it, it's a really good primer. Anyone who um, is into this field is just they're great stories it's a great gift as well um if your family and friends don't understand what it is you do so um thanks for putting <laughs> it out there well thank you very much I, I i really loved our conversation and thank you for all the the work you you do to to raise awareness on the on this on this topic it was really a pleasure to be a part of the of the show um, as well so um yeah, and I'm, um, certainly it's, it's a book for everyone, dog lovers, uh, people that work in mm -hmm. the field, but um, people that are interested in, in wildlife conservation, but also children uh, and youth, uh, I think, mm -hmm. who, um, who are interested in, uh, in what they can do yeah. for, for the planet and for, uh, to learn more about those applications for, for, for dogs. Definitely. It definitely came across to me as a book that was very approachable for, for kids, um, for newbies. But it also, even as someone who does have a degree in biology and has worked as a conservation dog handler for years, I didn't find it, I didn't find it boring or like it was talking down to me or anything like that. So you did a really good job kind of hitting the, the tone for making it accessible without making it, you know, something that uh, a professional handler isn't going to enjoy. So well done. Thank you very much, Kayla. I really appreciate that. It means a lot to me. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and um, we will talk again soon.
Okay. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. You can find show notes, donate to canine conservationists, and join our Patreon over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. patreon yet if you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term patreon is the way to go i spend hours per episode researching guests writing out questions recording interviews posting on patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those cleaning up the audio and putting together all of the promotional materials even with the help of volunteers this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time and right now i'm not paid for it For just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive Detection Dog Training video help calls, which happen once a month, our learning help calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining a community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there.